0: Our scripture reading today comes from john chapter 5 starting in verse 1 going to 29 after this there was a feast of the jews and jesus went up to jerusalem now there is in jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in aramaic called bethesda which has five ruth colonnades in these lay a multitude of invalids blind lame and paralyzed One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I missed you last week. I really appreciate Ron, one of our pastors, preaching in my place while I was on my day off, as he said in the sermon. Uh, I was in Yukoska uh, working my side hustle. Uh, I am a reservist. Uh, so we had our, what's known as a drill weekend, which is synonymous with day off. So um, he's right. I was on a little long weekend vacation in Yukoska. It's almost winter up there, y'all. It was cold. It was rainy. And it was windy. Um, and it's blowing it all down here. So better days are coming. It's cooling off. And it's Beautiful. It's good to be back with you, though. Let me open in prayer, and we'll get right down to work. Father, you are, you're good to us, uh, undeservedly so. Jesus, you, you pursued us. You lived a perfect life in our place and died a death on our behalf and rose again so that we too can know life. Spirit, you awakened our hearts so that we would see our dead. We could, we could see our Father, and we could hear our Father's voice. And we pray that you would do the same for us again this morning. Father, we're under no illusion that we are the only expression of your family on this island. There are lots of healthy, faithful expressions of your family here. Uh, We think of Zion right down the road. We think of uh, Bishop Whitaker, who is battling cancer uh, right now, and his son Josh is uh, probably preaching right now. We think of Keystone Nazarene a little further down the road and the Anglican Episcopal Church up the hill from Leicester there. We think of Calvary, Church of God in Christ, and uh, Greater Friendly, uh, Church of God in Christ. We think of Neighborhood, down by the mall. Uh, We think of Calvary, and we think of COSA, and and others. There are many others. There are many Christians gathered in the chapels this morning. So, Father, we pray wherever your people are gathered, that you would pour out your spirit. We pray that wherever your people are gathered, your kingdom would come, and your will would be done. We pray that you would give us today our our daily bread through your voice. You would forgive our trespasses even as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Father, wherever your people are gathered, give us a taste of your kingdom in its beauty and help us to see you and all of your kindness and love towards us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So we press on in our series through the Gospel of John, which as you well know by now, our series theme is simply Jesus is life. life. With, with enthusiasm now, Jesus is life. life. He's my life, guys. He is life. Jesus is life. The big idea from our passage this morning, which we just heard read for us, is this. Jesus works to restore life for the disabled and dead. Jesus works. He puts in work. He does work to restore life for the disabled and the dead. Our our text kind of breaks itself down nicely into uh, really two pieces, and then I'll add a third for our own reflection, and here they are. First, we're going to encounter a sample of work, and then we'll see, um, some of you write these, we're going to see a statement of Jesus' work. Basically, what kind of work he does and why he does it right? Why he does the work that he does. And then for our own reflection from this passage, we'll consider what I'll just call a similarity of work. In other words, we're going to see Jesus work for the good of this lame man in this passage. And what we need to see is spiritually, we need Jesus to do the same kind of work for us this morning. Uh, the reason I, I label the first kind of category of this passage as sample of work is really my favorite verse in the Gospel of John. It's not going to be on the screen, I don't think, but um, John chapter 21, verse 20, is the last, last verse in the, in the book, where John says, now listen guys, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's just a really cool verse. The beautiful narrative that we see unfold today by Jesus or the work of Jesus. He did things like this over and over and over again. This is one of a few that's written down. How many times have you started reading the Gospels and tapped out, right? They're big, there's a lot of information there. You read one and then you start another and you're like, I just read this. Like, one's good. There's a lot there. But it's just a sampling, guys. It's just a sampling of the good work that our rescuing king does. All right, so here we are. John chapter five. Jesus and his boys are on another road trip. Like every other week, we show up. They're setting out on a new road trip. Right? They're always they're bouncing back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee. And so here we go. We're going back to Jerusalem. We read the reason they're going is because there's a feast. Uh, you know, we see feast all the time too. It feels like Jesus is feasting all the time, and he is. He is because God's family is a feasting family. God the Father throws great parties or celebrations or feasts, if you will. We are a feasting family. So from Genesis all the way to Revelation, in fact, the story ends with feasting, right? We are a feasting family and we feast because our father's good and our father is kind. So we celebrate him and we celebrate the life that we have in him. So all through the Bible, feasts are hugely symbolic, Hugely symbolic, which, I mean, this, we don't really have any other reason to feast next week. Um, next week is our family feast day. That's actually what we call it, right? Family feast day. We'll have jerk chicken in the parking lot, cinnamon rolls, snow cones, all the good things. And people ask, like, why? Why are we throwing a party? Like, we don't need a reason in addition to our father's really good and really kind. And we have a ton to celebrate as is adopted in kids, a feasting family. So Jesus is heading to this feast. But notice in the narrative, do we actually get to the feast? See any feast? Nope. He doesn't actually go all the way to the feast. Why? Because he enters through what's known as the Sheep Gate, a small gate on the north side of the city of Jerusalem. Right inside the Sheep Gate is this pool. It's actually two pools side by side, known as the Pool of Bethesda. It's surrounded by these, they use the word colonnades. We don't really do colonnades anymore. Uh, Really nice. We have gazebos. Made out of wood. This was way better, but like columns with rooftops. So, uh, just this beautiful area. Um, actually, have any of you been to an onsen in the mainland of Japan? Uh, I asked in the first service. Like nobody had been, and I, I think I think it's Rona. Maybe just COVID. You couldn't go. They were all red zones, <laughs> guys. It's all green now. I think. This looked a whole lot like one of those outdoor onsens. Look, uh, you gotta go. You gotta go. And uh, in fact, what I was, uh, what, I, what I told everybody in the in the first service is like, as a family, we believe the church isn't like family. We are family. So, like, if your missional community is having a hard time gelling or getting over some relational barriers, the best thing you could do is book some tickets. <laughs> I'm not joking. To an out to an onsen in the mainland, they're surrounded by colonnades. They're absolutely beautiful. Only difference between those here in Japan and this one here in the Texas—they were all fully clothed, coincidentally. So, colonnades. That's all I was trying to explain. Colonnades. Go to an onsen. So. Here's the bigger point that you need to get, though. The people at this pool were forgotten and forsaken by the culture. They were outsiders, okay? Every one of them was broken. We read it. Uh, The text used the word multitude, so there's a crowd. Um, It's like 4th of July in the heartland of America at a park where everybody's vying for prime real estate with their quilt on the ground. There's none left. It's all taken up. So these pools are surrounded by broken people, paralyzed, lame, broken people, outcasts of society. And guys, just as feasts are hugely symbolic, we could, I could, some of you would be happy with this. I could walk away from the sermon right now with what I'm about to tell you. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus doesn't go all the way to the feast. He goes to the famished and he brings the father's feasts to them. That is the good news of the gospel. Every other religious leader would walk by the pool, look down on the broken people, and thank God that that, that I'm not like you. Jesus is different. And Jesus is better, and the gospel is beautiful, and the culture of our father's family, the culture of the kingdom of God is incredibly beautiful and life-giving. Jesus veers off course, changes the plan. He does not go to the feast. Instead, he brings all the goodness of the father's feasts to the famished ones, the broken ones who would never be able to get to the feast on their own, and that is the gospel, friends. That's the only reason you're in God's family. None of us can get to the Father's feast on our own. None of us deserve to be at the table on our own. But Jesus veers course and he comes and he brings the feast to those of us who are famished. Right? We can just walk away right there. But there's more. So um, he veers off course from the feast. He goes to those who are forgotten and forsaken by the culture. And then look at his focus. Look at Jesus' focus. He steps in. And we've already seen there's a multitude of people, right? There's a crowd, a couple hundred probably, hundreds of people. Jesus singles out one. Do you remember those really big Where's Waldo books as a kid? You guys have those, right? Jesus sees Waldo instantly, like... I was a little bit of an ASVAB waiver, so I would spend like hours on a page and still not even be sure what, like, you're playing tricks with me, right? Like, well, all those not even actually in here. Guys, wherever Jesus goes, he sees that one. He doesn't have to search. This is the heart of our rescuing king. He steps into this crowd. So Jesus sees the brokenness of the world, the billions of people who have lived here in broken existences. Jesus sees, but he sees the one. And look at what the text says. It says that Jesus saw him, this one, it's in verse six, I believe. Uh, verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and what? Knew. knew. Jesus sees and he knows, guys. He sees every single broken person in a crowd. And he knows. He knows that, that he'd already been broken a long time. Uh, the text said 38 years. Show of hands, if you dare. Most of you aren't even 35 yet. Some of us are. Most of you are not yet. Guys, 38 years of brokenness. Jesus sees and Jesus knows. Again, we could just stop the sermon right there. Our rescuing king sees you in the crowd. Personally, he sees you. Just let that sink in for a minute. He sees and he knows. He knows all the stuff that nobody else knows. He sees you for who you are. He knows everything about you. And still he steps into you with the same question that he's about to pop to this guy right here. Because Jesus is the only one who will ever know you fully, but still love you fully. Only one. You want to be healed, he says. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Verse 7, the sick man answers, oh man, I, yeah, yes, but I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. In this moment, Jesus, like we've seen his focus, he's focused in on this one man. It's, it's an incredibly gentle and heartwarming moment. And now we see Jesus as friend. Because guys, let me just say something about this pool, okay? Okay. This is straight-up superstition right here. Some of your older translations of the Bible might, if you have a King James in here, it might make reference to an angel of God stirring up the waters. It's just superstition. It's like the Bible stating what was a popularly held belief by the people. And here was the hope. When the water was stirred up, if they could be the first one in, they would be healed. First century QAnon, guys. Straight-up, straight-up myth. Straight-up popularly held conspiracy theory. It wasn't true. So all of these broken people were placing all of their hope for healing in a myth. There's something there for us, but we'll come to it later. But notice what Jesus does. Does he correct his faulty belief? Does he swing in and destroy his conspiracy theory? Does he come at him with just facts? Let me tell you the truth. If you knew the truth, you wouldn't be here. You'd be seeking me, right? No, no facts, just friend. And he says, would you, would you like to be well? And, and the man doesn't actually even give a clear yes. Pool of, pool of Bethesda. I looked it up. Bethesda, uh, roughly translated, just means essential oils. Did you know that? <laughs> just messing, just messing. I'm not including that in all the other myths I just mentioned. They work. Um, but true story, uh, because some of you are skeptics. So research, so th- these pool, you can go see these pools. Right? They exist. You can go there. Um, archaeologists have, have uncovered them. Pretty cool, actually. One of the pools is over 13 meters deep. Like, that's a deep, deep end. Um, at the bottom of the pools, uh, what we've actually found out is that several underground bodies of water came together there. And so they interacted with each other. And so, of course, when these waters would interact and different minerals would interact, the waters would stir up or bubble up. We talked about spicy water a couple weeks ago. So if you don't like the essential oils thing, like maybe this is the original fountain of LaCroix or something. But they, like, it, it would sparkle up or, or, uh, or what have you. No angel. just naturally the way God created the world to, to work. But Jesus, guys, look at this gentleness. He steps in and... In kindness, just asks this man whose worldview is whack and he's placed all his hope in myths, and he asks him if he wants to be healed. The man doesn't give a clear yes. Guys, look at this another beautiful piece of the gospel. Had the man done anything to deserve being healed? Did he see Jesus for who he is and go, like, yeah, You're the Messiah, you can heal me? He was trying to get into a pool with magic water so he could be healed. He'd forgotten about the God who created him. He was going for superstition. No real clear yes. In fact, he viewed Jesus as a means to an end, not the end himself. Jesus is the healer. He just wanted Jesus or anybody else to get him down into the water because everybody else would trample over him. Did nothing to deserve. He does not even express faith here, guys. That's some real hope for us because we have some pretty weak, anemic faith. Jesus still heals him. It's kind. It's kind. There's a problem, though. This healing happens on what's known as the Sabbath. You see this tension uh, a little bit later on in verse 18, especially. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, him being Jesus. Um, Now, there's a point of clarity. When you see Jews like that used by John in the Gospels, it sounds ethnic. It sounds racialist. It sounds a bit like a slur. Um, That's not how he's using that term. John came to use that term Jew collectively for the religious leaders of the Jewish people, right? So he's kind of just using that as a collective term. So let's do that. It says, this is why the religious leaders of the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. So two things going on here. Notice. Man, notice what the religious leaders do to this guy who's just been healed. So, look, 38 years, no walking. Small town, everybody knows each other. Now he's walking through town. So, a religious pe- person, somebody called and equipped by God to care for you and encourage you and appoint you to God and to exist for the flourishing of your soul, looks at you and's like... <sighs> Dude, you're walking today. That's insane. I am so happy for you. This is beautiful. You have been broken my entire life. Look at the smile on your face. When's the party? Uh, never mind. I'll throw the party. This is insane. They look at him and they say, "Put your bed down, man. Who who told who told you you could pick your bed up on the Sabbath? Now, guys." Whether you're religious or not, I'm sure you all, there is, there is a list that we know as the 10 commandments, right? So whether or not you know what the 10 are, that's fine. Um, These 10 commandments, one of the 10 is what? on the Sabbath, got to keep it. But here's the deal. God gave his people this thing, the seventh day known as the Sabbath for their good and for their flourishing and for their restoration and for their healing. Now it sounds like just rest, but it's, it's, it's not entirely. It's a different kind of work. So we work for six days and then soul rest or restoration just doesn't just happen on its own. It's its own kind of work. So on the Sabbath, we stop from our vocational work and we work at leading our soul to God and rehearsing the gospel and feasting so that we can be a restored people and a renewed, but it's its own kind of rest. It's not what we've made it like in our own culture. We talk about rest and I just got to do me. That's not Sabbath. Like I just got to do me. uh, I'm going to binge my favorite show for about 12 hours. That's not rest. That's actually more destruction for your soul, right? That's not Sabbath. So it's its own kind of work. So God didn't forbid all work on the Sabbath because there was a certain kind of work that had to happen so that we could rehearse the gospel and find rest. Old boy could carry his bed if he needed to carry his bed. But the religious leaders had constructed so many barriers because for them, being right was more important than the restoration of people. Some of you have grown up in religious circles, and some of you are still trying to find your way out of these contexts, as uh, I did earlier in my life, or I'm still working to where being right about something is more important than the restoration of people. And that's what you see. That's what's happening here. They actually constructed 39 categories of law to define what you could or could not do on a Sabbath. So they were breaking the religious leader's interpretation of the Sabbath. He wasn't breaking God's beautiful gift of the Sabbath. So here are just three quick examples. One was, let's say you needed wine on the Sabbath. You could go to your neighbor's house and you could use charades or Pictionary or wink, wink, like you'd have your own secret code worked out, but you couldn't ask for wine. You couldn't have a verbal agreement that you would get wine because that would, that would um, suggest there was a, tra- a transaction and there'd be repayment and maybe a contract would be written. So that's work. So you can't ask for wine. Another one was your lamp, right? You can't on the Sabbath, you can't turn your lights off To save on the electrical bill because that would be work. But if, let's say, you were worried about a robber or there was somebody in your house who was sick, you could turn the lights off in that case, but not if you were just worried about the wick burning down or the wax being burned up, like only in this case. Uh, My favorite, harken back to essential oils, um, vinegar. Any of you ever put vinegar on your gums to make your teeth feel better? I think our grandparents did that. Whiskey and vinegar? Anyway, pre-essential oils, whiskey and vinegar. So for the Jewish people, they actually had a, a law written in that said, if you have a toothache, you cannot put vinegar on your gums on the Sabbath. But if it happens to find its way into your recipe for the day and your teeth happen to feel better, that's cool. See what I'm saying? Like down into the weeds, the minutia. So here, here, let's summarize it this way. God gave his people a Sabbath so that they could have a taste of heaven in a broken world. And that they could lead their souls to be restored. When we add to the gospel or take away from the gospel in our religion. We take that taste of heaven and we make it a taste of hell. But that taste of hell is dressed up in church clothes. That's what happens. Put your bed down. No joy. He just walked for the first time in 38 years. Some of us are so concerned with being right. That we don't celebrate when somebody is restored. Guys, man. He didn't know Jesus has healed him. So he's just like, yeah, that guy, like this guy healed me. He said, he said I could carry my bed. Like he told me to pick it up. I'm just doing what he told me. Later on, Jesus comes and he finds him and he has this personal conversation. It's, it's beautiful. And he says in verse 14, he says, Hey, see, look, you're well now, man. Now, now listen, you're well, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, some, some read that and they're like, Oh, so he, he was lame because he'd sinned early in life. I don't think so. If old boy had been lame for 38 years, sounds like he was either lame from birth or something happened to his legs very, very, very early in life. I don't think Jesus is saying you were lame because of what happened to you. Now don't don't do something again. I'll I'll break both arms next, right? But some of us have that view of God. In fact, um it's so much so that it's it's unhealthy to the point that we will see people around us suffering. And the way a gospel deficient religion has trained us is we're like, hmm. I wonder what he did. That that looks really painful. And then some of us even work that into conversations with people. um, And it's really gospel deficient. Now, can God introduce a physical piece of judgment uh, in in the face of rebellion? For sure, if if he wants to. But in a couple chapters, we'll see another conversation that Jesus has where somebody else was unwell. And so people in the crowd ask, hey, who sinned? Like, did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. He's not unwell because of his own rebellion or somebody else's rebellion. That's not the point. So I don't think that's what Jesus is saying to him. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, you are physically well now, and it is a gift to you. Now, you still have a rebel heart, a heart that's inclined to rebel tendencies away from the Father. Be aware of that and stop your rebelling. Come back to the Father so that something worse than being physically lame doesn't happen to you. Well, what's worse than being physically lame? being spiritually lame, having a physically fit, healthy body and a soul that is obese and rotting and anemic and lazy, dead or disabled. Guys, we'll get to similarities in a bit, but I just got to hit this one real quick. Our generation, our culture, your demographic, your lines of work, most of you are physically fit and most of you are healthy and you pay a ton of attention to your physical health. You can run and you run fast. You can push up and you can get your hundred or whatever you need. You can do, no more crunches, all right, but you can plank for like five minutes. You can do all the things, your keto, your whole 30, your pescatarian, vegetarian, egalitarian, complementarian, allitarians, like, all of them. You're so fit physically, and you pay no attention to your soul. And that is the worst that Jesus was talking about. And so he warns them, he says, I just gave you a gift. This gift can itself become a bit of a curse, we can be a distracted people, never Sabbathing, never leading our hearts to rest, never repenting, never running back to the Father, and our souls are dead or lame. But the good news of the gospel, Jesus works to restore life to the disabled and the dead, not just physically, but spiritually. So there's this conflict. Jesus has a conversation with the religious leaders, and he says to them in verse um, I'll start at 17 and just read into 18. My father is working until now and I am working. Uh, I love this. So here's our big idea. My father is working until now, meaning God never takes a day off. He created the world. He took a break from his creative work on the seventh day as an example to us, but he's still working. He holds the world together at all times, he holds us together at all times. He's sovereign over everything. Jesus never stops working. It's just Jesus, for the first time, showed us the right work that's supposed to be happening on the Sabbath. He's not breaking the Sabbath, he's breaking into the Sabbath and showing us how the father has given it to us for our good. And that's why I he said, hey, I'm, I'm working now. I'm doing my father's work on the Sabbath. And the appropriate Sabbath work is what? Restoration, renewal, giving life, restoring life, not just for yourself, not just leading yourself to do this kind of work for your own soul, but serving other people in a Sabbath on a day like this, on a day of rest, serving other people so that they too can be restored. That's why they want to kill him. So, so there is the sample of Jesus' work. So he says, the father's working and I am working. So let's ask this question. What is he working? What is he doing and why is he doing it? So kind of his statement of work, beginning in verse 19. And we see, we can hang our thoughts on four words here. We've got, we've got like father, that's oh, not a word. It's a phrase, like father, like son. That's our first one, like father, like son. The second word is love. And the third word is life. And then fourth, not a word phrase, less judgment, more mercy. Okay, so like father, like son, love, love life, and less judgment, more mercy. The first one's in verse 19. Here's, here is Jesus' statement of work, what he does for work and why he does it. It's beautiful. Verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For, I love this. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. <laughs> Yesterday, my, my six-year-old son was schooling me up on Star Wars. He knows things about Star Wars I will never know. He tells me about this bounty hunter who worked for Jabba the Hutt And flew planes, and he just so happened to have a son who grew up to be just like his dad, and he too wanted to fly planes and be a bounty hunter and work for the job of the hut. That's my six-year-old son's way of expressing, like father, like son. There are we are similar. He wants to be something like me. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. This is his first piece in the statement of work. I have a father. I love my. I'm just like my father. Same character, same nature. We're both God. I'm God the son. Whatever my father does, I aspire to be. We would say it as when I grow up, I want to be just like my dad. That's Jesus' way of saying that. So he does whatever the father does, okay? Like father, like son. Second piece of his statement of work is love. Verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. When I was in Meps... I started running with my dad, and my dad and I are both super competitive. So dad would always run like two paces in front of me, and it made me angry. And every time I picked up speed, he would pick up his step a little bit more. He'd let me pass him just a little bit so I could think like I got the old man, and then he would take off again, right? We were driven by this competitive sense, The father and son are fueled with a passion, but it's not competition. The father exists to display the glory of the son. He wants us all to see the beauty of Jesus. Jesus exists and works so that we would all see the beauty of his father. So they run shoulder to shoulder, stride and stride, so that we would see the same thing, the beauty of our creating God and the beauty of his kingdom. And it's fueled by love. So, this is important... Everything that Jesus does, all of his work is fueled by that same kind of love. Just like a healthy child growing up in a home where they know they're loved, their parents' love for them fuels their work. That's what Jesus is saying. Like father, like son, love. And here's how the love is so important to us. Look at verse 21. That love dictates the kind of work that Jesus does. And here it is. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Guys, In love, Father gives life to dead people. That's got to mean something to us. In a room this size, some of you feel dead. In a room this size, some of you would like to be dead. In a room this size, some of you have wrestled with thoughts of suicide even this week, thinking that death would be better than the life you're living right now. There's hope here. I mean, there's hopelessness here. There's despair here. There's pain. There's deep wounds there is a sense of being alone guys here is the hope of the gospel see and this this corrects some of our misperceptions about god some of us have these faulty views of god that he's distant And uncaring, he created the world, or maybe he didn't. Maybe you don't think he did. But he creates the world, and now he's just distant, and he's letting it tick like a clock. And maybe sometime he'll get back in. Maybe he's just dependent on everything that's happening down here, and he's wringing his hands, unsure of what to do. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't care about you. Look, we got all kinds of, here's another one. We think God is straight up angry, and the the son is just like his dad, an angry man just ready to become uncorked at any time and the fuse to go off just waiting for you to mess up so he can break your legs like he broke the legs of the man at the pool of Bethesda but that's not what we're reading here good father good son loving father loved son life-giving work guys The Father's not distant. He's near through Jesus. The Father is not uncaring. He's caring through Jesus. He's not waiting to crush you. He's waiting to restore you like the man at the pool. He brings dead people to life. And that's really good news because some of you feel dead right now. And some of you feel as though you'd rather be dead. The Father gives life. He loves to give life through the Son. Less judgment, more mercy, verse 22. For the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son. That's Jesus' work now. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus is God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now, see that because some of you up a few lines further, you got uncomfortable with a statement that says, the Son gives life to whom he will. You're like, uh uh-oh. What if he doesn't will to give me life? Like, am I chosen? Am I not chosen? Am I in or am I out? Like, speaking of Pharisees who make 39 categories of everything and ruin the good news of the gospel with gospel-deficient categories, who are we to try to discuss who is in or who is out or to erect categories that don't exist? It says, it says, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Whom will he give life to? Well, we just read it right here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? There you go. Who does Jesus give life to? Anyone who hears his word and and believes. You know what Jesus wants you to hear right now? His voice. He wants you to hear. He's asking you the same question he asked the man of the pool. You want to be well? Like, do you want to be well? That is Jesus' voice to you right now. He wants you to live. He wants you to be restored. He wants you to see beauty and hope and feel peace and know joy. He wants you to have a seat at his father's feast. He wants you to be in on the father's party. That's his desire for you. Hear his question and believe. And how do you, how do you believe? You, you say, yes, I, Jesus, I, that's what I want. I want to be healed. He doesn't come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. All right, now. Verses 25 to 29 are really important. It just kind of elaborates on that point. So let me just read it slowly, make a couple observations, and then that'll kind of wrap the statement of work piece. And I'll I'll talk about how we're similar to the man at the pool, and, and I'll wrap it. Truly, truly, verse 25, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Check it out. So an hour's coming, but it's already here. So John is talking about something that's way down the road, but he's talking about how it's it's already here in a way, right? Well, what's he talking about? when the dead will hear in the voice of the son of god uh, the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself no life in the pool right back to the pool of conspiracy all these broken people trying to get in the pool there's no life there there's no magic life is in the father and life is in the son And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. He's God. Do not marvel at this. Now, here it is again. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right. Most important words for you to consider today. Have you ever done evil in your lifetime? Okay. So there is a future resurrection in which Jesus is going to speak a word and in the same way that Jesus spoke and the worlds came into existence, Jesus will speak and every person he ever created that we will all be restored to life. Those of us who have rebelled against him and sin will be resurrected to what? Judgment, guys. We're all in the second category. Those of us who have lived a perfectly just life, a sinless life, a right life, never rebelling, always loving God perfectly and loving other people more than we love ourselves. I mean, I don't think a hand can go up on that. Those people will be resurrected to life. So where's the hope in that? Where's the gospel? Here's the good news of the gospel. None of us fall into that category. So God the Son took on human form and he lived the perfect life in our place. He was the perfectly obedient son we never could be. And then he dies a substitutionary death on our behalf and he rises again from the dead to life. So that any rebel who by faith believes that Jesus is my rescuing king, lives a perfect life in my place, dies in my place to satisfy that judgment by faith. Now I am raised to life instead of judgment. So when you're resurrected, your hope will be in one of two things. Your hope will be in your own existence that it was good enough to be raised to life. Or some of you just straight up hope there is no resurrection. You hear this and you're like, nah, ain't no way. I will not be held accountable. So some of you have your hope in that. The rest of you have your hope in either you being good enough or your hope is in the gospel that Jesus is good enough in your place. And that is the beauty of the gospel. When your faith is in Jesus as your rescuing king, you will be raised to life because he was already raised to that judgment in your place. So what kind of work does Jesus do? Just like his dad, fueled by love, his aim is to give you life, same as to give you life, guys. That's the work Jesus is doing. Right now, he doesn't take a time off. No 72s, no 96s, no long weekends, no fake ROMs. You know you've been tempted. <laughs> he doesn't quit. He exists for your restoration and flourishing in life. That's his work. Less judgment, more mercy. All right, I got to wrap big time. Similarities. Guys, we are the man of the pool. We're the man of the pool. There's the door. So let's call it the sheep gate. Let's call this the pool. Bethesda, you guys got to move out the way. We got water right there. Jesus walks in. He sees a crowd of broken people next to the pool. Guys, for 38 years, you have lived an existence of believing that there is life found in a pool, in something other than Jesus. And we believe, I just need someone else. I need something else. I need to be somebody else. I need anything else. And Jesus shows up and says, your pool is a... Well, actually, he doesn't show up and say that first, does he? He just shows up and says, do you want to live? Like, Do you want to be healed? He's a friend first. And then later, Jesus speaks the truth to us. He says, you did know your pool was like complete QAnon myth, like complete conspiracy. There, it's just magic. Fake, like there's no life there. I'm life, and I've given it to you. Guys, we're the broken man. We were the broken man at the pool. Jesus was on his way to the feast, but he stepped away from the Father's feast so that you, the famished rebel, could eventually one day be seated at the father's table. And he comes to you at the pool, all of your substitute, Jesus, your career, your reputation, your physical strength, your spouse, your retirement, your finance, whatever you were putting all your hope in, and he gives you himself instead. The one thing you need for life. And he brings you to life. The resurrection isn't just future, it's experienced now. The moment you say yes to Jesus question, do you want to be healed? He raises you to new life. And every day after is a new resurrection where he restores the image of God in you. What's your pool, guys? I know it's not named Bethesda. Do you have a pool in your life? I don't know what it is. But I know that Jesus sees you through the crowd. Jesus is here now. He sees your soul with an eye piercing gaze, but look, you gotta hear this. It's not an angry gaze. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He knows you're broken. He knows you're hurting. He knows you've been looking for life outside of him. But he's actually here to give you mercy for that, not judgment. And his question to you today is the same question that he asked that man Would you like to be healed? Too many of us grew up in a Christianity that valued these four letters. I had a bracelet for it, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And it's like all the pressure of being Jesus. Like, go be, this, go be this incredible hero. Like, it was this incredible burden to bear. So I threw all those bracelets out. They're gospel deficient. If I marketed my own line, um, it would be WDJD. What did Jesus do? That is the life a Christian is meant to live. In response to what Jesus has done for us. Guys, Jesus stepped away from the Father's feast. And he stepped into your famine. And he brought you life where you deserve judgment. And he asks you this question. Do you want to be made well? Grant, are you coming? Who's coming? Somebody's coming. Kento's coming again, sorry. Uh, Kento came in our first worship gathering and led us in a responsive prayer before we shared communion. Communion. And a piece of this will be responsive. But Kento's also going to give us some space to be silent. And family, in that space, in that silence, Jesus is present. And he's asking you these words this morning. Do you want to be made well? Kento.